you movie junkies and cinephiles, it's time for the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. And welcome, one and all, to episode 265 of the SLS Cast. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, this is the Ladies of Trinity Church episode of the SLS Cast because it turns out that way back in 1883 out in Washington, D.C., the Ladies of Trinity Church collected a bunch of recipes and they published a book a cookbook, if you will, of 265 choice recipes. And with that wonderful little bit of choice recipe knowledge, I, of course, am mad. And coming to us all the way from sunny California would be our resident Sony employee, Tim. And yo. I, what, what was that too loud? No, just saying yo. Oh, I thought you said whoa. No, I was yo. Like, whoa, settle down there, partner. You're way too <laughs> excited. No, I, Skype might be jacking with us, but no, you're 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 all right, sir. Yeah, well, it's nice to be jacked by Skype. But what did you think of the trailers that were debuted at this year's Super Bowl? Because you had Solo, you had the new Jurassic Park flick. That they were hawking? I mean, did you catch any of those? As you know, where I work is a busy day. Yeah, I I didn't catch anything. Um, Had I not seen any discussion of it on Facebook or Reddit or what have you, um, you know, the Twitterverse and and whatnot, um, I wouldn't have even caught the Tide commercials and... um, the like the Doritos commercial and the Mountain Dew ice commercial, um, so I, I watched those and then I watched the Alexa lo- loses her voice commercial, and that's about it. Um, I, I saw. Oh, I, I guess I tracked down the solo teaser trailer. Um, and. That's it, yeah. And I heard about the Cloverfield thing, so I guess Cloverfield 3 is on Netflix? Yeah. Or is this just a completely separate Cloverfield it's, thing? It's Cloverfield 3. Yeah, it's it's tied into okay. it. I've been kind of curious by it, because the idea of it sounded interesting, and it sounded very much like the story of the movie Life. You know, that little Jake Gyllenhaal and what's-his-name and Rebecca Ferguson movie that came out last year that came and went pretty quick. I've been just very curious about it because it's like, well, the Cloverfield movies are well are you know well made. It's not like this is going to be a crappily made flick. I mean, it's J.J. Abrams. He's going to put a little bit of heart and a little bit of soul at least behind it. And so sure. we saw that they had the trailer, and the trailer trailer looked pretty interesting. And it's been a big rumor that it's going to be going on Netflix. And then at the end of it, of course, it said coming to Netflix. And where it normally gives you the date, it says or it said very soon. And I guess when it meant by very soon, it meant immediately, because once that preview dropped, the movie dropped on Netflix, so you you were pretty much able to watch it instantaneously. Oh, that's pretty cool. Yeah. And I did actually see a pretty common thing during the Super Bowl, is that normally they'll show you like a pretty lengthy minute, 30 second trailer. Now they're showing you 30 second teaser clips to tell you to go online immediately 
to watch the full length trailer. So I think that's their way of, you know, not hawking up the 15 million bucks to just to promote a two minute and 30 second trailer when they can just show you a little piece of it until you go, you know, watch it on their website. Well, absolutely. I mean, it's definitely a money saver, not to mention like the um, Doritos Mountain Dew Ice commercial that they did for the Super Bowl. That shit's been out for a week. I literally watched it a week ago. Oh, really? So, yeah. So here they are spending all this money on these ads and all this money just to, you know, show the ad. And it's like, but you can see it a week ahead. So it makes perfect sense that you would just do like this 30 second teaser thing. That even if somehow that got leaked or people wanted to, you know, see it or somehow they decided to let that go before the Super Bowl, you can still control the gate in terms of the full trailer. Like, you know, keep the web page down or whatever you want to do. And then now you don't have to worry about having wasted the money. So, I mean, it's a good, it's a good tactic. It's a good tactic. But, uh, yeah, I found out that there's going to be a Jack Ryan series on Amazon. So we watched that trailer last night, the wife and I. So that looks interesting. Turns out that was the trailer that was on Super Bowl. Mm-hmm. And again, like I said, I watched the teaser trailer for Solo and was, you know, had a big whomping meh at that. Yeah, doesn't that and... movie look like it's going to disappoint a lot of people? Yeah, well, I, I really and truly think that they are getting people's expectations so low <laughs> no pun intended <laughs> that when they go see the movie they'll be like oh that wasn't so bad and i i i i'm i'm thinking it's probably going to work so we shall we shall find out eventually yeah i know i'm more excited for the freaking mission impossible movie and it says something when we're now on mission impossible 85 Whereas we've only had a handful of brand new Star Wars movies, and I'm already fucking tired of that shit. But the good thing about Mission Impossible is that they're only releasing them every few years, and they've only started making them kind of back-to-back the past uh, six, seven, seven, eight years or so. I don't know. As long as Tom Cruise can stand, he should be making Mission Impossible movies every four years. Good to know. Well, I mean, and the the first Mission Impossible movie featuring Tom Cruise came out in 1996. Yes. So that's not bad. That's, on the whole, averaging out at this point. Because there's six movies right now, right? Uh, This will be the sixth one? I think so. Uh, Yes, Mission Impossible Fallout 2018, upcoming sixth film in the series. So that means they're averaging one every four years. So that's not terrible. No, not at all. No. I mean, so all things considered, if you're doing one every four years or so, as long as the stories are inventive, then sure. Let's do it. (laughs) Oh, well, this is going nowhere. It got nowhere pretty quick. (laughs) Oh, man, my balls hurt. Shit. Um, Okay. Well, that's yeah. that. That's we got to keep this moving. Or I'm just going to start talking about my ailments. <laughs> fair, fair enough. 
So shall we move to the old sack then? See if there's any ailments in the sack? Yes, let's move away from my sack and go to the show sack. Check that mail sack, check it good. Check that mail sack like you should. All right. Well, good news, folks. (laughs) We got emails. What? Uh, We got two. Plural even. Yes, plural even. Two from two people? This is amazing. Well, two from the same person. That person, of course, being Johnny White Trash. Thank you very much for sending us some emails there, Johnny. Uh, first up, he says, remember when I said I would email you about the, re- about the Matrix reboot? This isn't that email. Yes, that's right. I, I gotta be honest with you, Johnny. I, I don't recall when you said that you would do that. <laughs> Do you remember that? <laughs> it's been a while since he's emailed us. <laughs> I don't I don't remember that. <laughs> I'm sorry. It's, Was it know. his like his idea of a Matrix reboot? I maybe I, 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 don't, know. I don't know. I yeah. just I'm I don't remember even in our last conversation because the last time we talked it's been oh my gosh, I feel bad now. Because it's been like a month and a half since we've talked. And and we just talked. I mean, you and I just hung out and Skyped for a while for like two hours. And I, even that conversation, I don't remember him telling me about the Matrix reboot. So I guess, I guess, I guess we'll just be in suspense because this is not that email anyway. This is not that email. He says, holy shit, guys, this is an official follow-up email. Previously, I mentioned that I was going to wait until Dunkirk was out on Blu-ray to pick it up. Well, now that I have an Xbox One X, I bought it on 4K Blu-ray. 4K is totally worth it, by the way. So anyway, I'm watching the movie, The Other, and very early on, there's a scene where bomber planes are flying overhead and all the soldiers dive onto the ground to take cover. At this point, my wife yells out, Andy's coming. My daughter instantly dropped to the ground, pretending that she was a toy in Toy Story and Andy was coming. They both started laughing harder than they should have. While I appreciate the comedic timing and everything, I just couldn't keep watching the movie after that and haven't watched it since. Dunkirk isn't ruined forever or anything, but I gotta get the joke out of my head before I try watching it again. Anyway, I figured if anyone would understand my frustration, it would be you guys. Also, popcorn movies are good movies. It's called escapism. Gah! And that's, that's that email. Um, he follows it up literally 13 minutes later with, okay, fine, it's the Matrix reboot email. <laughs> he writes, a little while back, there were rumors of a Matrix reboot or reimagining or whatever. At first, I was dead set against this. At least the idea of a reboot. Until I had an idea. The, the, the only way they will get me to watch a Matrix reboot is if Agent Smith is played by, wait for it, Keanu Reeves. I know it will never happen, but let's face it. If they reboot the series, they'll fuck it up. That being said, there are so many more stories besides Neo and Trinity that can be told in the Matrix universe that I would totally be on board for, but a reboot can straight up fuck off, unless Keanu is Smith, because I think it would be funny. Yes, this is why Hollywood doesn't ask me for movie ideas. (laughs) Anyway, it's just rumors, and I don't think there are any actual plans for a Matrix reboot, but whatever. What about you guys? Would a Matrix reboot or more stories taking place in the Matrix universe interest you? Who would you cast in a reboot? 
And those are the emails. So to his first email, I will say, yes, I can definitely understand why you would be frustrated and want the living room to yourself to um, experience Dunkirk. That being said, I was reading your email for the first time. And as soon as I got to Andy's coming, I like I knew as soon as I read Andy's coming, somebody was going to hit the floor. And, you know, so I, I appreciate it just like you did. I, I appreciate the 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 joke and the humor. Um, but I, I think that Dunkirk is serious enough that um, you, you should be able to move past that pretty quickly. Uh, thoughts on that, Tim? If any, yeah. I well, oh, on the Dunkirk thing, yeah, yeah. I mean, you spent the money on it, and it's supposed to be one of the better 4K presentations that came out in the year 2017. So enjoy the shit out of it. Why not? The movie's less than two hours. But the only question I think I have: Do you have capable audio setup? A capable audio setup, i.e., 7.1 surround sound. If so, crank that baby up and have yourself. A hell of a time. I'm just waiting for the email saying that he finally watched uh, his 4K Batman movies so we can do our next episode of Last Batman Standing. But apparently being afraid of Dunkirk is taken over. So we'll see how that goes. I don't know. Um, what, what do you think about his questions about the Matrix reboot, though? I'm surprised we haven't received another Matrix movie. Um, if they're going to do another Matrix movie, we got to move away from Neo. And not just as in Neo as a character, but even Neo as the building blocks of the newer films. Because if you have these characters going in search of Neo... It's going to bring back a lot of freaking Star Wars Force Awakens vibes, you know, where you're just waiting to see Neo. Neo's going to pop up at any moment. And if we don't, and if it's built up to a point where he doesn't pop up, then we're just disappointed because the movie, you know, it leads you on to believe you're going to see Neo. So if it's going to be in the Matrix universe, it has to be a little different. Movie universe, I should say. Well, okay, I, I guess if it's going to have anything to do with Neo, then... It would have to be a reboot, which he's clearly against. Because, as I recall, I mean, it's it's been many, many, many years since I've seen any of the Matrix movies. But Neo dies at the end, right? Right. Well, by by reboot, I meant uh, like a sequel trilogy, I guess. Because okay. well, they came back and the somebody in the studio, oddly enough, it might have been Harvey Weinstein, <laughs> uh, a year or so ago, came back and said something along the lines of, "Well, he." died but didn't he like kind of transcend this technology and become like part of it become like the ultimate one within the technology or something like that oh, maybe I don't, I don't know i suppose it would, i guess if you had to have keanu somehow i think i would like him to be the new architect i think that would be cool sure yeah but but i think the only way really and truly the only plausible thing they could do and not reboot it would be to do prequels. I think you could establish the mythology of how the machines were created and and how they eventually took over and stuff like that, which I think would also scratch the Terminator itch that has been um everybody, you know, always gets excited for Terminator but it just hasn't been played uh it just hasn't been pulled off properly. And so and I and I know Cameron's doing another Terminator or whatever, fine. But 
I think it might scratch that itch because much like Terminator, the machines take over the world. So that would really be the only thing I could loosely say I'd be interested in would be prequels. Uh, outside of that, I'd be just, I'd be just as fine if they never did anything with it ever again. Yeah. Yeah. But that was fun. Yeah. Discussion. Now if only they just put the email. Matrix on 4K. That's what I'm waiting for. 4K Matrix. So I can see 4K nipple radio tunage during that orgy scene in Matrix <laughs> 3. Is it 3? Yeah, it's in the third the, one. I, I thought, thought the Matrix... I thought it was the second one. I think there's an orgy in both. Maybe, yeah. I think, but I think it's just like a different perspective. Yeah, I think it's in the third one. Because I, th- I remember leaving the theater and my and the adults really didn't know what to make out of it. But my Uncle Stoney kept like tweaking my dad's nipples because of that scene. Uh-huh. Tune in the old uh, the old nipple door. Matrix Reloaded. Okay. Matrix oh, it's Reloaded a, it's, is the second one. Yeah. Oh, it is the second one? Oh. Yeah. Shit. Well, Johnny, thank you so very much for sending us those emails. Um, if you have any wonderful replies, of course, please uh, send those to us by way of the show at slscast.com, or if you want to hit us up on Twitter to talk about these wonderful things, we would love to hear from you there as well by doing at the SLScast. Yeehaw! And I think without further ado, it is now time for the news, is it not, sir? Yes, it is. And then here we go, folks. It's the news! <laughs> So, for me, I really only have one piece of news that I wish to discuss uh, for this week. And it comes to us from Jezebel.com by way of Madeline Davies. And the article is titled, Here's audio of Quentin Tarantino defending Roman Polanski. 13-year-old girl, quote, wanted to have it, end quote. Now, unfortunately, the quote is more or less even properly contexted, which sounds absolutely terrible. Now, it is a like an eight and a half minute. It is literally like an eight and a half minute deal here. Yeah, eight, eight minutes and 43 seconds. And if you listen to all eight minutes and 43 seconds, there's, I mean, it, it is an actual discussion that's being had. And the thing is, is that it, it continues to fall into two camps. People who are like, uh, you know, Roman Polanski is the devil. Roman Polanski, you know, should rot in a prison cell, et cetera, et cetera. And then people who are like, no, Roman Polanski is cool. He's just a great artist. Um, you may or may not understand him. And or people who are saying, no, no, come on. It was like 40 years ago. Um, it's over and done with. Blah, 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 blah. Now, to be clear, uh, Tarantino, uh, at least as of this 2003 Howard Stern interview, so damn near 15 years ago, uh, does not know, um, does not know Roman Polanski. And he is getting his information and his opinions, uh, from Roman Polanski's book that he wrote, um, and also from other um, interviews and stuff that had been done with 
um, Samantha Geimer, who is the young lady in question, the 13-year-old in question. And it is interesting that, and some of it is due to Geimer's, I guess, not necessarily reluctance to, to talk, but definitely a seeming unavailability for interviews and whatnot. Um, she did in 2013 finally write a book. She wrote her book detailing her life and experiences and things that had come before, during, and after the, uh, experience with Polanski. And I used to be in the former camp. I used to be in the camp of Polanski is the devil and he needs, you know, to die. But I do also understand where Tarantino is coming from. And a lot of people are not, they're, they're going off of the, they're going off of this whole spiel of, you know, oh, she wanted it. She wanted to have it, blah, blah, blah. Which, as bad and as terrible as that sounds, given the information available at the time, the actual prosecutor's report um, and, and like the medical reports and stuff that were available stated more or less that physically she was not necessarily a willing participant, but a capable and able participant. And so when you have all these different narratives and you, and, and again, all these different narratives that converge in this huge thing that pretty much leaves out both the perpetrator and the victim. You're kind of, if you're not, if you're not personally going into all the different aspects and reading for yourself, which Tarantino had done and everyone on Howard Stern had not, you can see how it looks absolutely terrible for Tarantino. And in what little defense of Tarantino there is, he admits in the audio that if it was my 13-year-old daughter, of course, I would fucking kill him. But at the same time, he tries. he's also trying to say that the word rape has a certain connotation that gets conflated. And... If you think about movies like uh, Irreversible, Irreversible uh, which is French for irreversible, it's the Monica Bellucci film, that's what most people think of when they think of rape. And Tarantino says, no, 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 that's not the same thing as sex with a minor. And so that's where his hang-up is. I disagree with him. I think that while a lot of people have a lot more in intelligence and are able to break down rape as an assault versus statutory rape, which is a different kind of sinister, while not necessarily as obviously physically invasive, right, as when you, you know, beat someone and then you know, beat someone and, and then rape them versus coercing them into having sex there's there's still undeniably a fundamental pr problem here and 
people now are jumping on this entire bandwagon of hate Tarantino, hate Tarantino. And I'm like, well, what does everyone have to say about it? And there is, um, for, there's an opinion piece here, uh, from theguardian.com, literally came out on the 30th of last month. And it's, uh, by way of, uh, Hadley Freeman. And she says, what does Hollywood's reverence for child rapist Roman Polanski tell us? So you can already see that <laughs> her editorial is demonizing Polanski. And she quotes from the, um, she quotes from the all too familiar court records and stuff where Geimer had said, you know, things under oath and what have you that have kind of maintained the narrative, but she never actually talked to Geimer. And so with that in hand, um, there's another website called Quillette.com, and this was an interview by uh, Jamie Palmer on the 31st of January, so literally the day after, and it is an actual interview with Samantha Geimer. And when you read this interview, it really does kind of change your perspective. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't make it okay. Let's be 100% clear. It does not make what happened to her okay, but it does change the dynamic of understanding the media circus involved prevented any kind of justice from being done. And it's gotten to the point now that the justice is only what people make of it in their minds, not what it really means to the people involved, perpetrator and victim. And she literally doesn't even care anymore because she, as a strong woman, as a strong human, has already moved on with her life. And she literally, even here, she's like, I don't care. Polanski can come back. I don't care. Polanski can make new films. I don't care. Her biggest problem is how people continue to divide without taking into consideration what that division actually means. And how a lot of the people completely ignore the victim and the perpetrator because what those people say or do might not fit their narrative. And, and it all comes back to Tarantino because everyone is on this hate train for Tarantino right now. And not just because of this audio, but also because of the Uma Thurman, Thurman stuff. And I'm just kind of wondering, and I apologize because it's taken like seven minutes to get here. Um, um, but I'm just kind of wondering, is it okay to to just kind of walk away from it now and just kind of leave it as something that it'll 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 never be even, but at this point it's settled. I don't know, Tim, I really I'm so sorry. I know I'm kind of running all over the place with this, but I think it's stuff that people don't 
talk about. I think it's more of an important conversation than than just a lot of agreement than like what we hear on a lot of other podcasts or news outlets or even what we read online. But as for Tarantino, in regards to the Uma Thurman stuff, it also came out that the the writer, the New York Times writer, made Tarantino out to be the bad guy. And that was not Uma Thurman's intent. In fact, there were other people that were supposed to be named in the article that weren't allowed to be named in the article. Therefore, instead of having no names in the article, the only name that they could have put in there was Quentin Tarantino's. And in fact, Quentin Tarantino, who's been talking to Uma Thurman for however long about uh, working on her, uh, working with her on the article, he was supposed to be giving quotes backing her up. Instead, he was made out to be the bad guy because he was, or he, or I should say the fall guy because his was the only name that was, that they were able to print. I don't think, though, judging him on the Uman Thurman stuff, based on what he said 15, 14 years ago or so, on the Howard Stern show of all places, I, I don't think that's right. Because that right there doesn't affect the Uma Thurman stuff. Now, with the Quentin, with what he says about, um, about Rome Polanski, I don't think it will ever be a safe conversation to have. I don't know if it will always be not a safe conversation to have, or if it's just something that's going to be like, you know, be temporary for a little while. I have a feeling it's never going to be a safe conversation to have. Sure. Now, Polanski, he obviously made a wrong choice, but I forget though, at the time, did he know the girl she was, was she 16? What was the age? Uh, she was 13. Okay. Did he know at she the was time 13 that she was 13? At the, uh, he did. Okay. He did. He knew that uh, she was 13. Uh, she did turn 14 the next month. Um, but yes, he knew that she was 13. And actually, the uh, as near as I can tell from the timeline, the day before or just a couple of days before um, the actual incident, he had had a previous photo encounter with her where he had convinced her to take topless pictures. Oh. And Geimer herself has stated, if I had told my mom that day that he had taken topless pictures of me, she would have never let me go back. And thus the incident occurred. Sure. And so she then says in a very, you know, and, and I'm, I don't want to misquote her or anything, but my paraphrase is that she takes some culpability for that. She takes some culpability because if she had simply said something and she knew she could have, but she didn't want to, um, then she would not have landed in the situation where she ended up being raped. That does not mean that she deserves it. That does not mean that it makes it okay. But, she, but even her saying that, people get mad at her for that. And so she's like, but that doesn't make it any less true. And she's like, I'm taking ownership of my life here. This is not about making me a victim. And I shouldn't feel bad because I was raped. But I do have to come to terms with the fact that if I had acted differently, that wouldn't have happened to me. And this is where it gets into the, it's, you know, it, it's, 
It may or may not ever be even, but it's settled. And so it's really fascinating. Uh, I have not read her book. Uh, I think I would like to at this point. But um, I, I don't know. I have the, uh, in terms of where Quentin Tarantino and all this lands, I, I was in a forum about it on Reddit and I said this, and this is where I'll leave it. I listened to all the audio, read the Wikipedia entry about the case, along with an article denouncing Polanski from last week and an interview with Geimer from the next day. When all is said and done, there is no question as to whether or not the rape occurred, but how people view sex with minors. People conflate the word rape as what we see on television or the movies, where some poor woman is attacked and bloodied in a dark alley at night. The film Irreversible is a very real version of this, when in reality, there are very real degrees. It's semantics, but that's where Tarantino gets stuck. He was also contrasting what he read in Polanski's book and reports of Geimer having forgiven Polanski and having moved on, bearing in mind that Geimer's own book wouldn't be available for another 10 years after the initial audio was recorded. There was even a film in 2008 that Geimer participated in where Polanski is heavily defended. While nearly everyone, including Tarantino, according to the audio, believes that sex with minors is wrong and should be against the law, it seems that he just doesn't agree with the term rape as a catch-all. I vehemently disagree, but also understand that positions can change over 15 years. Maybe his has, and he stands with us now. But whether or not you agree, Geimer's own view is probably what we should focus on. And she says, quote, Moral judgments are personal. Everyone is free to not attend, purchase, or view anything at all depending on their own feelings. But I object when someone demands that I adhere to their moral views and that if I do not, I am somehow complicit. I do not need others to tell me what to feel or believe. This is puritanism and censorship dressed as empowerment. It's easier to hate certain celebrities and boycott their work as punishment for real or false indiscretions that occurred years ago than it is to help someone now, in your city, or on your block, who really needs it. It's just lazy if you ask me. End quote. And that's my news. All right, moving on from there, we're going to go over <laughs> to a death. That is right, from CNN.com, Connie Sawyer, Hollywood's oldest working actress, dies at 105. This year is written by Lisa Respers France, and it was published on February 1st, and it says this, Connie Sawyer, who was the oldest working actress in Hollywood, has died at 105. Her daughter Lisa Dudley tells CNN... Sawyer suffered a heart attack and later died on January 21st at the Motion Picture Television Fund Retirement Home, where she resided, according to Dudley. The character actress appeared in multiple film and television projects over the years, including roles in Archie Bunker's Place, Will and & Grace, and When Harry Met Sally. More recently, she appeared as the mother of James Woods' character in the Showtime series, Ray Donovan. Quote, I loved working on Donovan. My son was a hitman, and I really got to cuss, end quote, she told The Hollywood Reporter in 2015. Sawyer was born Rosie Cohen in Pueblo, Colorado in 1912, the same year the Titanic sank, to a Jewish family from Romania. Her parents, Samuel and Dora Cohen, moved to Oakland when Sawyer was young, and she enrolled in dance lessons. 
Her mother's love of theater and vaudeville led Sawyer toward acting as an eight-year-old. As a teen, she won amateur contests and landed her first professional gig on the radio. From there, Sawyer started doing a comedy act, performing on the vaudeville circuit and nightclubs. Quote, I learned all about show business, end quote, she told People last year. Quote, I played every nightclub across the United States in the 1930s, and some of them were real dumps. But that's how I got into the biz, end quote. Um, and the article goes on from there. It does go on to say that her big break did come in 1957 after Lillian Small, an agent for Frank Sinatra, caught her performance as a tipsy society lady in the Broadway comedy A Hole in the Head. Uh, if you want to read more about Miss Connie Sawyer... Go check out CNN.com article, the CNN.com article, Connie Sawyer, Hollywood's oldest working actress, dies at 105, written by Lisa Respers France. How about we mosey on to something a little bit funny here uh, via www.telegraph.co.uk? Star Wars fans defy church protests to attend first cinema showing on a Sunday in Isle of Lewis. This year was published on January 28th, written by Simon Johnson, and it says this. Star Wars fans have defied warnings that they were breaching God's law by attending the first film to be shown in a public cinema on the Isle of Lewis on a Sunday. All 183 tickets were sold for the showing of The Last Jedi, the latest installment of the space saga, at the An Lanter Arts Venue in Stornoway. Others attended a workshop which involved building a model Death Star. Two protesters turned out at the cinema, with a woman holding a placard urging the cinema-goers to keep Sundays holy on the Sabbatarian Isle of the West of Scotland. The other protester, the Rev. David Fraser of the Free Church of Scotland, argued that they should, quote, repent and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, end quote. David Green, the chairman of the venue's board, said some staff had faced pressure from their families over the move, but argued that no one should be able to dictate to others, quote, what they can and what they cannot do, end quote. The island was traditionally staunchly Presbyterian, and its observance of the Sabbath was so strict, there was a time when play park swings were chained up at dusk on Saturdays. This has been diluted in recent years with the first commercial flight landing at Stornway Airport in 2002 and the island's ferries operating on Sundays since 2009, despite fierce protests. Uh, and the article does go on uh, f uh, from there. Uh, Matt, what, what do you think about this little island town of uh, of Stornway? I I think it must be a little island town for it to have this much controversy that it actually makes news wires. <laughs> for us, I like everybody else is just kind of like. Well, I guess I'm just going to go watch this movie, or I'm going to go see this trailer. I'm just going to do this. Well, sweetheart, are you going to do that before church or after? I'll do it after church. Okay. Or they'll be like, no, I'm not going to go to church today. Oh, okay. Or they're going to be like, yeah, I'm not religious for XYZ reason, and I'm just going to go do this. But not on this little tiny island. No, 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 no. 
We kind of wonder, though, if there, there were only two <laughs> protesters. So <sighs> did everybody else just go and see the movie? Probably. <laughs> More than likely, it was those one of those two protesters that caused the whole stink in the first place. <sighs> fucking kyle's mom all right i have two more funny pieces of news i don't want to talk about the sony shakeup that's going on i don't want to talk about the movie pass shakeup that's going on i don't want to talk about cineworld's 3.6 billion dollar acquisition of regal cinemas that was approved by shareholders that's going on i don't want to talk about the greatest showman breaking another box office record or even the game of thrones duo benoff and weiss whom are to take over a brand new Star Wars trilogy. This is in addition to Ryan Johnson's trilogy that's going to come after Episode Nine. I'm going to skip all that shit, and I'm going to talk to you about tweets. Yes, tweets via ToneMadison.com. Don't underestimate this account. AMC Madison goes rogue on Twitter. <laughs> It doesn't matter all that much whether a local business is good at using Twitter, despite what social media snake oil strategists might tell you. But some play did I say strategists? Strategists. Jesus Christ. But some places run their accounts into the ground so thoroughly and so memorably that they deserve to at least, yes, they deserve to at least become footnotes in Madison history. Anyone else remember when Monana Restaurant Creme Café tweeted, quote, bow to the creator, end quote, back in 2015. Such is the case with the six-screen movie theater at Hildell Shopping Center. It opened in 2007, optimistically enough, as part of the Sundance Theater chain, then just last year became the AMC Dine-In Madison 6. Through all that, it's been the best option in a town that sadly lacks a centrally located first-run theater. It also treated us to a long-running comedy of errors on its Twitter account, which started in 2009 as at Sundance Madison and was renamed at Madison 6 last year. It turns out AMC higher-ups didn't even know about this Twitter account, even though it legitimately tweeted out information about the ownership change last year. But the account was never taken down, nor did it share information referring followers to another local or corporate AMC account. Quote, the theater should not have been running the account. All of our social media is handled centrally from AMC corporate, end quote, says AMC spokesperson Ryan Noonan from the chain's headquarters in Leewood, Kansas. Quote, our theaters per policy do not operate their own social media accounts. It was doing it without authority or oversight from AMC theaters, end quote. But before we go much further, I should say to all the folks who've run this account over the years, I and a few other local journalists owe you a dinner or something for having tormented you over very small things here and there. You no doubt had better things to worry about than Twitter, and generally succeeded in making your theater a comfortable place to see movies and enjoy above-average movie snacks. And skipping down the article just a little bit, uh, this week, though for a short and shining moment, the account went full on hashtag resistance. On Monday, some disgruntled employee, or perhaps a former employee, who still had the password logged in and tweeted, quote, we were better when we were Sundance, TBH, end quote. 
shared comments from, unha- from unhappy customers, and at one point ominously told a follower, quote, don't underestimate this account, end quote. <laughs> and the AMC Madison 6 Twitter account there actually has AMC Dine, the actual logo for it. It took a few hours for the overlords to wrest control and delete this first round of offending tweets, but they didn't finish the job a few hours after the initial rogue tweets were deleted. The account started getting all sassy again, taking an even more defiant tone. For example here, they uh, they put up a poll and it said, okay, new poll, who's better? And then the choices were Robert Redford or boring CEO of AMC. <laughs> And eventually, on a Monday evening before 6 p.m., these rogue tweets were also deleted, and the account tweeted the following, quote, the views and actions on this account today do not reflect AMC. As a company, we strive to give the best movie-going experience. As a result, this account is shut down and no longer active, end quote. However, it did take a little bit longer for them to delete the cover photo with the words, Quote, I'll never let go Sundance, end quote, superimposed on an image from the Leonardo DiCaprio death scene in Titanic. Yes, the scene, it says, I'll never let go Sundance while Rose is on the frozen door and holding on to Jack and they're both touching foreheads. Yeah, I thought that was pretty good. Um, And and because of time, I'm just going to say that the next article was via avclub.com. Deep learning technology is now being used to put Nick Cage in every movie. Apparently, somebody is using a fancy algorithm thing to make it able to literally put Nicolas Cage's face onto any character in any movie. For instance, they have on here Nicolas Cage in a still of uh, Where's the Lost Ark, where he's Indiana Jones. Uh, another one here, he is uh, Lois Lane from Men of Steel, and you can actually watch these. These are moving clips. So, uh, Matt, what do you think about rogue tweets in general from these companies that really have nothing to lose? And what do you think about this deep learning technology being used to put Nick Cage in every movie? The Twitterverse stuff, I just think that's, I just think that's funny. What makes the troll work is that uh, AMC or Regal, whoever, I think it was AMC, um, falls for it because honestly, this is just a no name Twitter account with no follow, you know, with hardly any followers. And, um, the likelihood that it's going to pick up steam is very, very small. And nipping it in the bud is, is going to be the trigger that causes everything to happen, right? And so you would think they'd just be smart enough to go, haha, that's funny, and then just work behind the scenes and, um, you know, close the account or whatever. But by making a stink and causing people to react to it, you only make yourself look more foolish. So it doesn't sound like AMC is the sharpest tool in the shed, but it is a tool. Anyway, in terms of the learning, deep learning thing, I think it was very clever of them to do the Nick Cage thing. Not because um, it's useful, but specifically because it shows people 
the lighter side of it, which gets people talking about it and expecting it and looking forward to what it really can do. Uh, and, and I think that's the smartest way to get new forms of technology out there, especially when it is literally bleeding edge technology. Otherwise, it just stays locked up in labs and may or may not ever really see the light of day. So good on them for having some fun with it. Somebody was saying that they were not surprised by this technology because they were talking about it being already being something that 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 the movie industry is wanting to use to replace actors like not necessarily replace actors, but resurrect either resurrect dead actors or face map certain actors so they can just CGI them into a movie, a brand new movie. So they don't even have to come in and actually do any work or even use it as insurance of some kind. So if an actor dies in the middle of a movie, at least you have their face and their uh, body uploaded into a computer to where you can actually use that to complete your movie. Uh, Do you think that that this type of technology could even be used for uh, even what we see now, like in, in Rogue One, where they're using body doubles and putting somebody's face over somebody else's uh, face? Maybe ultimately. But, I mean, if you look at this stuff, it's not, I mean, it's not ridiculously convincing. No, but it it looks better than, than fucking Leia in Rogue One. Well, that was, but that was facial mapping too. So. Yeah, but I'm, I kind of wonder, though, if like if algorithms, though, is the way to go. And I don't know if algorithms, how much algorithms played a part in the actual facial mapping. I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I it doesn't seem to me really any better than the VFX that they have right now. I mean, come on, Soup's mustache, right, from Justice League. That is terrible. Yeah. Terrible, terrible CGI. And this stuff wouldn't have done any better. And you had to, you have to get it to think and, and learn and look for these kinds of things to be able to replace the stuff and make it work. So who knows? Maybe down the road, one may never know. But as it stands right now, I would say it's really no different. Yeah. Yeah. The end. So that's all I can. The end. Okay. The end. <laughs> well, fun. Fun, 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 fun. All right. Well, then let us move over to the movies. What do you say, sir? Let's do it. Here we go, folks. It's. All right, and again, we are doing, we are in our continuing Oscar coverage. We are doing all of the documentary films. Uh, So this year we have 2017's Icarus, Last Men in Aleppo, Strong Island, and uh, Abacus, Small Enough to Jail, and finally, Faces Places. So, where would you like to start there, Tim? Strong Island. Strong Island. Check it out. You stumble out of the garage and into the yard where you fall. I said to the officer, where is my son? I want to be with my son. You lie on the ground, bullet through your heart, and know you will never see your sisters again. Your mother, your father. That was the beginning. I did not feel that we were received as parents of a victim. Our blackness and how to survive being black in America 
was something that our parents instilled in us extraordinarily well. No officer spoke to me. No officer would look at me. You hear that your son is being investigated, and you grow more and more afraid. The police had turned my brother into the prime suspect in his own murder. Your father said to me, these are vicious people. Your son was shot down like a dog. This kid is going to actually get away with murder. I'm not willing to discuss any of my prior cases with anybody. My brother was not armed, not violent. In no way is his death justifiable. 23 white people will decide no crime has even been committed. It was like all the sound left the world. I'm not willing to accept that someone else gets to say who William was. All right, 2017 documentary directed by Yance Ford, and it is basically a film about the murder of Ford's brother back in 1992 in Long Island. Let me say, let, let's let's put it this way. This movie, in short, gets a 3.75 from me because I feel that it does do a, an excellent job of showcasing how a senseless tragedy can tear a family apart from the most unique perspective of all. It's the filmmaker's family. On that note, I think it succeeds. And so I think, therefore, you could argue it's an effective documentary. Beyond that, though, looking into the dynamic, a documentary, ideally, should be even-handed. It should make its case. It should be persuasive in doing so. But it should not be one-sided. And sadly, due to its nature and its chosen route of how it of how it wants to dictate its position the documentary's position and its efficacy for showing showcasing this family torn apart by uh this the, the, the murder they unwittingly negate any potential neutrality that the viewer is expected to maintain and so you you either find yourself in the camp of buying in completely to their side and their version of events or you may end up like me going look i i feel for you and you have clearly clearly suffered an injustice in terms of the tragedy itself being truly senseless but that doesn't necessarily mean that the outcome could have been something different unless the outcome was avoiding the senseless tragedy in the first place. And because of that loss of neutrality, because of that one-sided nature, because of the unwillingness, the seeming unwillingness to acknowledge 
what it might look like to someone else, the situation. That's why I give it a 3.75. I think it does not completely pass on objectivity. And it's kind of the catch-22, because I don't know that it could have been as effective at showcasing how this family was destroyed any other way. And that is what I have to say. So 3.75. What do you got there, Tim? It's very effective, uh, the story is, and how it was told. And it's a story that I think that should have been told. I, too, just disagree with the way it was presented. And I do agree with you that it needs to have another side to it. And they tried to. What's her name? Uh, Yance Ford yeah. is um, is her name. And, and Yance Ford, uh, the younger sister, who is also the director, and pretty much the narrator of the documentary and interviewer, she actively looks for people from the other side, the detectives, to get a better understanding of what's going on. It's sad, it's horrifying, and it's really devastating to watch what actually tore this family apart. Because all they wanted was answers. And they definitely deserved to receive those answers. And I would like to jump in real quick. Yeah. Uh, we should note, we should note that for the purposes of the documentary proper, Yance um, at that time was living as a female and uh, existing as her brother's sister. Um, she is, uh, Yance is transgender and therefore now is he. Um, and so just to be clear, we're not um, trying to disrespect Yance, uh, Yance's transgender status just for the purposes of the documentary and the time frame that it took, uh, that, it, that it placed in. Yance was still the sister. Right. Uh, Yance does now identify as male. Right. Despite it being just a horrifying story and an important story, I do appreciate that he did go and try to find these uh, input and information from the other side to get a better understanding. But it also seemed like when he received that input from the other side, it was either, help me out if, if you understand what I'm trying to say or if you disagree, but to me it seemed like it just wasn't really enough or it was information that wasn't, that they weren't really willing to fully accept or willing to even well, comprehend or understand from, from another side. I think that the Ford family's previous... I guess, dealings um, with racism really set the stage and colored the tone for what happened after Yance's brother was killed. Oh, for sure. Right. And I think that's what makes it so difficult to, uh, to, to move, move the objectivity forward. Um, and a case in point, Yance himself in the documentary says, to me, I, I, I've never thought about the killer. To me, no offense to present company, so I'm assuming there was a white person there, or at least a white man. He looks like every white man I've ever I've ever seen. And it's a powerful moment in the film, to be sure. And it does kind of go to the idea that victims of a crime generalize 
they get a stereotype stuck in their head. And, for example, Yance's grandfather died from an asthma attack because uh, he wasn't considered important enough to treat. And they stuck him in the ER, but it was a the the you know air quotes over here separate but equal ER. So whites got their own ER, blacks got their, and he died in the ER waiting in the waiting room. Um, Yance's parents moved from the South to New York, uh, where they had experienced a great deal of racism, and the grand jury, even in 1992, the grand jury was all white, and of course. Um, bought into the idea of self-defense and therefore the person who shot Yance's brother was never brought up on any charges. And so I can see and empathize truly um, as, you know, without, I'm not trying to make this, you know, about me, but to at least try and give a true perspective. I feel like I can empathize because um, I was robbed and kidnapped and carjacked um, about 12, 13 years ago. And, uh, it was an African-American man who robbed and kidnapped and carjacked me. So, um, it colored my perception for a while. And I can totally understand where Yance is coming from. And so I don't take offense to that, but at the same time, it does, it does make a difference. And we have to acknowledge that. Also, there are other things that were going on with her brother at the time, uh, with Yance's brother at the time. And Yance himself admits to some culpability in what had happened. And some of it is unnecessary um, because no one can see the future. Some of it is realistic because Yance uh, Yance says if I had just said something to my parents there was no way that, that they'd let him go back and that's true and again you know it doesn't it doesn't make what happened any less right or any less okay um, but there are certain degrees that people have to live with so it, it, it's complex. It really is complex. And I agree. I mean, so I, I don't know. I agree with you, Tim. I don't, I mean, I think you're saying it right. It's just, it's difficult. It, right. I mean, it's, it's definitely a discussion piece. People need to watch it. I mean, it's a 3.5 out of 5 for me. And I don't, I mean, it, I'm stumbling over my words because I don't want it to come across as if I'm judging the material or not the material, but the, uh, the content it was how the content was presented. And because I'm reviewing it, I have to take that into consideration. And again, the story is important. The story is, I mean, it's devastating. I cannot relate to that extent. It definitely makes me think about things differently. So I, the movie definitely succeeds in that way. I just had an issue with the presentation of the material, the filmmaking aspect of it. So. Sure. Three and a half out of five. All right. Well, then where do you want to go from here, sir? I am going to go with another movie that I had an issue with its presentation, and that was Icarus. All right, folks. Icarus, 2017 documentary film. Let's check it out. 
I was thinking that we'd start, I ask you questions, and you answer yes or no. Were you the mastermind that cheated the Olympics? Yes. Today, the World Anti-Doping Agency suspended Russia's sports drug testing lab. 99% of Russian athletes are guilty of doping. It's worse than we thought. If this is true, it is an unimaginable level of criminality. I was helping to facilitate one of the most elaborate doping ploys in a sport history. This goes all the way back to 1968. Every sport was Putin aware of the existence of the Russian doping system? Yes. We are top-level cheaters. This all can be proved. It's quite mind-blowing. New York Times is breaking tomorrow. Tomorrow. that has the potential of affecting the credibility of all sport. Why would I watch an event that's fixed? You in any danger? Yes. Oh, I need to escape. Putin will kill me. Holy shit. Putin calls the claims the slander of a turncoat. Two people connected with the Russian doping program are already dead. There never was anti-doping in Russia, ever. All right. Yeah, this is a documentary by Brian Fogel. Basically, it chronicles him looking into doping to see if it really makes a difference and how much of a difference it would really make. And he stumbles across a Russian doping genius. They befriend one another. And it turns out to be a fateful meeting where somehow the entire international doping worldwide in the Olympics get found out and Russia gets in trouble and Putin's mad. And so here's this documentary that kind of showcases this wild and crazy ride. But that's not how the documentary necessarily starts off. No. Right. And I have a lot of issues with this documentary. A lot of issues with this documentary. And really and truly, it comes down to two things. The narrative and the editing. The first half of this movie, and it is a two-hour movie, a full two-hour movie, literally the first half of this movie does not need to exist. It does not do anything for the story. It has nothing to do with anything whatsoever in terms of what makes this movie so important, air quotes. And then the editing. The editing is just completely all over the place and oftentimes for me produces more questions than answers. Um, and for example, um, Brian Fogel, I don't even know who the hell this guy is. He's apparently he's just his own wonderful director, producer, author and playwright of note in his own field, I suppose, but no real big time recognition outside of Icarus. And so how he manages to go from, I want to try this doping thing, because he's a cyclist, he's a big cyclist, you know, he's heavy-duty amateur cyclist, you know, borderline could have been pro at cycling. So, I mean, you know, serious athlete in that regard. And he just goes from, you know, it'll be fun, let's try doping, to meeting Grigory uh, Rechedkov, Richet, um, 
who is like the fourth most important guy in all of Russia, in the entirety of Russia, when it comes to sports doping for every Russian athlete. They don't, they don't explain that. It's just kind of like, so this guy told me to call this dude on Skype and I did. What? Um, and this guy the whole time, the whole time, you're, is like, does he not know he's being filmed? I mean, what the, what did he think was going to happen? Uh, so there's just lots and lots of questions. And I really and truly think the only reason this film has gotten any form or fashion of attention is because of the somehow accidental, um, the, 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 the happy little accident, I guess. I mean, if you're, uh, Rechechnov, then probably not of, the entire world finding out about the Russian doping scandal. So this is the documentary of that. And that's the only thing I can think of. It's not edited well. It's not paced properly. And the whole first half literally doesn't even need to be there. Um, because it doesn't actually have anything to do with the physical Russian doping. And except for how Fogel and Rachenkov meet and become friends. You could just take five minutes and explain that at any other point during the second half of the movie and just focus on the Russian scandal. So I give this one a 2.75. I really wasn't overly impressed. It's, I mean, it's better than okay, I guess, because I found it, at least the second half I found interesting, but it's not all that great, guys. I'm sorry. <laughs> It's just not. It's a bait and switch movie. That's that's the problem with it. It's an obvious bait and switch. You're focused on. It's not like it's doing any character building. It's not like you're really super getting to know this guy. I mean, you're getting to know this guy when he's training and all this stuff. But like, you're not supposed to care about him later on. It's the Grigory guy that you're really trying to care about because he's the one that's possibly going to get fucked over by Putin and all of Russia, you know, for helping Brian out with uncovering what Russia has been behind uh, regarding doping in the Olympics. It just all kind of seemed also too good to be true. I'm not sure exactly if he had ties already. It's like he, he hired somebody from PR or he already got a deal with Netflix by telling him who his contacts were. I know it wasn't Netflix. I'm pretty sure Netflix picked up the movie from a festival somewhere. But just as an example, just and somebody from Netflix heard and they're like, no, 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 no. You can't just have a movie about that. You, ne you need to make it seem like you stumbled across it because you kind of stumbled across this. But you need to make it apparent that you really stumbled across it. And we need to use all the video you've shot all the footage you shot of yourself cycling, this self-promoted project of you cycling, and we will somehow make this into an Academy Award-nominated documentary thriller. With saying that, though, the movie is entertaining. It's harrowing. It's good. But it comes across as a little fake. Whereas Strong Island, I should have said that the movie, that movie felt polished, too polished. This one feels a little too fake or a little too uh, theatrical or even uh, staged. And that's why I'm sitting at a three. If this movie were an hour and a half, 
I think it would have taken a totally different tone. I think I would have cared a little bit more. I think I would have been caught up in as into uh, what was going on, into the suspense, into the thriller aspects of it. But when the thriller aspects do come into play, it's just kind of all thrown at you, and it's very dramatic, very, very dramatic. So, um, you know, I like I don't know, Matt. Do you think this Grigory guy? Do you think he was a little too hammy? Like he played well, it up a little I mean, too much. Yeah, that's that's. I don't know that he necessarily played it up. I, I he did not come across as dis disingenuine, especially in his relationship and his friendship with Brian. I just, I, 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 I'm just having a lot of trouble. And again, I think this really goes to the editing. This is terrible, terrible editing. We don't have any bridge between him understanding that he's being filmed and not understanding what would be the product of, you know, what would be the result of him being filmed. I mean, that does literally just doesn't make any sense. Right. So it's whatever. I'm hoping this one doesn't win. I'm hoping a lot that this one doesn't win. Moving along. Why don't we (laughs) go to last men in Aleppo, the happiest documentary of the bunch. <laughs> yeah, I was definitely, by the time I finished this one, because I literally watched, let's see, I did Icarus first, then Strong Island, then Last Men in Aleppo. That's how I watched them. And by the time I get done with Last Men in Aleppo, I'm like, oh my God, I want to die. <laughs> like, why is this so sad? Why are all these documentaries so, so sad? And Last Men in Aleppo isn't just sad. Oh my God. It starts off. I mean, what? It's literally, where do you go from here? They're pulling dead babies. And I'm not shitting you here. The movie starts with them pulling dead babies out of the rubble of a recently bombed a building in Aleppo. You, you, you are in for a fucking train wreck of a ride. And I don't mean that in terms of filmmaking. I mean, just like, this is a sad, sad movie, uh, documentary. Even though there are, he does pull one live baby out. He does. He gets one of the one of the children. I thought, but I thought that was the. Alive. I thought that's what you saw at the beginning. Oh no! You, before they can pull the kid who's alive out, they pull the, his sister out. That's a little baby. No, oh, maybe I mentally not. block that one. It's it's rough. And and don't get me wrong. There's. There's tons of humanity and tons of family moments and touching uh, and 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 lots of rescue and stuff like that. But make no mistake, this movie, Last Men in Aleppo, you know what? Just here. Well, here's the thing. Probably can't get anything because it's all subtitled, right? Yeah, I think I don't think we're really going to pull yeah. a whole lot of trailer audio from a number of these. <laughs> At any rate, all right. So, look, Last Men in Aleppo's documentary about the uh, Syrian civil war, and it is literally taking place in Aleppo, and it is following a group of white helmets who are basically the Syrian civil defense. And if you go and just kind of Google, in general, Syrian civil defense, you'll find that there's two. Uh, this is the new one, not the original one. Uh, which is a very important distinction, which is why they're also known as the white helmets, um, because they actually wear like white construction hats while they go through and helping people in the rubble. Uh, and it follows, uh, strictly speaking, it's following like four guys, 
really it's following it primarily it's following this one guy um Khaled and you're just literally it's just taking you on about a basically about a year or so of their life of their lives as they're staying in Aleppo and just trying to survive they're just trying to survive and help civilians um despite what you may or may not hear beyond the scope of this documentary um there is literally no proof that anyone from the white helmets or the syrian civil defense uh in this context ever did anything to help the rebels or the government or anything they did not like the government at all they hated uh bashir or bahir i guess um and all these guys did was try and help find and rescue civilians from buildings and help them get medical attention. And Russia and Syria were targeting these fuckers. And like, I'm sorry, I shouldn't use that term because Russia and Syria are the fuckers targeting these heroes. There we go. Say that right. Apologize for the first part of that. That's not how I meant it. Um, to purposely take the hope away from the civilians. And I just like, oh my God, there's just, you know, it, it's just terrible what was happening. And you really and truly get to see all of it. You get to see the good, the bad, the ugly. Um, you get to see how life really goes on life continues no matter what and um the only problem for me with this movie and and it and it's not that um the length in and of itself was a bad length it's only it's it's a little over 90 minutes long uh so just a little over an hour and a half i think the problem is is that in trying to demonstrate the monotony of it all and how things weren't changing and how things just kind of kept being, you know, running these guys down, you ju you just end up seeing a lot of the same thing. And so it, by the end of the film, it's losing its impact. Now it does pick it back up for the last, I'd say six minutes or so. Um, which is important, but the thing is, is that six minutes could, you could back that down 10, 20 minutes and just keep that six minutes in at any point, um, beyond the halfway mark. And the ending would not be any less impactful. And so it's for that reason I'm giving Last Man in Aleppo a four. I really feel that its length, um, and its desolation just kind of starts to all blend together. And it just really feels like it's kind of more of the same. And it hurts the movie somewhat. But it's still a very powerful film. I really like this movie. Uh, despite, despite how sad the film is. Um, and I think it's drastically important, um, that everybody watch this movie. Um, I don't care if you like documentaries. I don't care if you like foreign films. Um, this is kind of like the Schindler's List of the 21st century. It's that important because you have to see and understand 
what war really does to people. And this is that film. So four out of five. What do you got there, Tim? There is really not much more I can add to that. Uh, it's a highly effective documentary. It's an incredibly important documentary. There is not a lot of preaching here. There is really not a lot to preach because you're thrown in the middle of it all and you see everything. I think um, given its short time period, I had a hard time understanding the period of time that was happening. Like it felt like some of the scenes did not follow one another within time. It had a, a somewhat of a choppy feeling to it. Um, and that's really my only, I guess, complaint. It's on Netflix. Guys, watch it. It's a very, very important documentary. I, too, give this one four out of five. Awesome. All right. Well, where would you like to turn? We have two left, sir. So, you know, I'll, I'll let you pick. What What was your favorite? That'll be the last one. Oh, my, my favorite was Faces Places. And really? Okay. Even if it wasn't, even if it wasn't our total favorite, um, I would still like that one to be last because it's just nice after so much darkness to kind of start coming out and have something nice to talk about. <laughs> Abacus, it is. Yes. All right, Abacus, small enough to jail. Today, we are announcing the indictment of a federal savings bank on mortgage fraud, securities fraud, and conspiracy. A federally chartered bank that has been catering to the Chinese immigrant community since 1984. If you were going to pick on a bank, family-owned company, wedged between a couple of noodle shops in Chinatown, is about as easy a target as you could possibly pick. When I was a lawyer, there was no bank owned by Chinese and serving the Chinese. When I walk around here, I feel very much at home. This is a very uh, tasty uh, noodle shop. That's always special. That's the butt. <laughs> when we were children, my dad was excited about this bank he was going to start. We serve people who've never even dealt with the banking system before. This whole ordeal began in 2009. One of our loan officers stole money. He was lying all over the place. He was running a money laundering operation. I fired him that day. They went straight to their regulator, and they told them about it. The DA's office started asking us questions. Wait a minute, maybe we're the target. If that prosecution goes through, that bank is going to go out of business. Although this is David versus Goliath, they're a whole family of lawyers. We spent a lot of time investigating and ended up absolutely convinced that the loan department was corrupt through and through. They routinely falsified mortgage documents. Reporters in this town were treated to this extraordinary photo opportunity, this almost Stalinist-looking chain gang. Herded like cattle down the hallway. I've been doing this for 25 years, and I've never seen that happen. Mommy's worried. Papa's 80 years old. He's been up to 5.30 a.m. He has nothing to eat for dinner. Let's, let's get you some food. Papa, you do. This is how he is. He's very calm, and I'm like a jumping bean, so I'm always running around. You better eat now. You are older than the man, okay? You're not a young kid anymore. The state is killing you. Abacus Federal Savings Bank had one of the nation's lowest default rates, not the highest, one of the lowest. Frankly, if every bank had underwritten as well as Abacus, we wouldn't have had a financial crisis. People get the wrong impression that Chinese are not law-abiding. This case is an attack on our community. We're easy prey. Too big to fail turns into small enough to jail, and Abacus is small enough to jail. 
All right, so this is a 2016 American documentary film. Uh, it didn't, it, while it is 2016, it didn't really get its airplay until last year. So uh, that's why it's in the Academy Awards for this year. Uh, it's uh, done by Steve James, and basically the film centers on Abacus Federal Savings Bank, a family-owned bank in uh, Chinatown in New York. And it was it was literally the only bank in the United States, if not the world, but definitely in the United States, that was prosecuted as a result of the 2008 or 2009 financial crisis. Um, and you could not have picked <laughs> a worse bank to try and send to court and destroy. And it is the story of this family. Uh, and how they stood together and thank God that they actually had the um, financial resources, the ability and the wherewithal to take it. Because this this whole documentary takes place over the course of five years. So it is just a fantastic movie. I really, really like this movie. Um, and it made me angry for all the right reasons. Um, I think though that I, I think that there needed to be, I don't know. The cut of the movie is good. The length of the movie is good, but I think that there are still, I think there are still some holes in the storytelling, not, not anything that's, that, that runs the object, the objectivity uh, and makes you question it or anything or the neutrality. But I think that there is a certain, a certain, I don't know, there's a certain disconnect between the family and the bank. And, and the things that are going on that cause the scenario in place to occur. And this isn't the first time that this family has had an, has had an issue that could have caused the bank to collapse. And it's not, and I'm not saying they don't know how to run a bank or anything like that, but I think that there's some things going on that, and they try to just kind of, they, they kind of try to show the family as a family and just like all families have their idiosyncrasies and one of the kids, like they show them kind of arguing back and forth and one of the kids just can't seem to get a word in edgewise and she kind of gives up and, and they cut back and, and you see a lot of this family dynamic. And yet I don't, I, I think that avenue needed to be a little bit better explored because I think if they had, there might have been a, a more definitive answer as to why the bank ended up in trouble in the first place. And while as as much as that's not a part of the story, it needed to be, in my opinion. And so that's why I give this one a 4.25. Um, I think it's very well done. Uh, and I think that... For what it was trying, the story it was trying to tell, it executes it very well. And I thought it was a nice, clever, um, I, I thought it was a very clever use of, um, 
Come on, it's a wonderful J- life. Thank you, it's a wonderful life. Uh, they they made some great you know analogies with it's a wonderful life, but I I think that there needed to be a little bit more explored into why the situation happened, um, instead of just the how, and then the subsequent railroading of this poor family, and that that choice, um, left a little left left a bit to be desired for this. So I give it a 4.25 out of five. And what do you got there, Tim? Uh, This is a four out of five for me. What really made this a compelling and interesting documentary? It was the, the personalities of the family. Sure. It was just, it's just funny. Like this guy who's very serious, he's serious. You know, he's, he wants to get work done, humiliated by what's going on. And it's clear that he's humiliated, humiliated, has the wife that he does who wants nothing to do with the bank and is annoyed this is happening because she's always hated the bank and um, who's a spitfire. And then he has these daughters who are all lawyers. And it's like, it's, it's interesting to watch because you're absolutely right. They picked the wrong fucking family to mess with. It it was hard for me while watching the movie to figure out if they were completely in the clear. I get it. The overall meaning of this documentary was to imply that there is something corrupt in the overall system because what's the point of slapping the hand or um, bringing down the small business when bigger companies are getting away with so much more. If it's just to prove a point, then there's something completely childish and quite nonsensical about. At first, you get the idea that this is what they're aiming for. But then as as the movie goes on, it focuses more so on the family. And because they're focusing on the family, the documentary begins to take a side. And it begins to take the side of the family. Although, unlike some of the other documentaries, it they do a good job of showing both sides. But ultimately, by the end of the film, they choose a side. I am not sure if I'm 100% behind this family. I'm sure that they shouldn't be held fully accountable. I, I'd be very surprised if it's absolutely true that nothing shady came across their desk or within any of their files. I give this one a four out of five. Well, then that leaves us with Faces Places, a 2017 French documentary film. It's directed by Agnes Varda and J.R. Now, um, these are two very, very, very different people. Uh, Agnes Varda is a longtime avant-garde director of French cinema. JR is a kind of like a, a Bansky-esque photographer. And they apparently mutually admired each other from afar, discovered this about each other, and then worked together to make this film where they literally just go out into the vast villages, small towns of France, get stories and talk to people. And then they just... they. Uh, Varda films JR doing his photography thing and putting it up on the buildings and stuff like that, doing, doing his form of art. Varda is basically just filming 
as JR kind of does his thing. And of course they do share input with one another. I mean, she's not just a silent bystander by any stretch of the imagination. I, I really, really just thoroughly enjoyed this film. I thought it was a little bit out of my comfort zone in terms of these, uh, the, the, the filmmaking style. And a little bit out of my comfort zone in terms of execution, but that doesn't make it bad. It just gives you something new to try and appreciate. The only thing I really didn't like about the movie is that it did feel somewhat scripted. Yes, I agree with that. I, I think it's because, not because they were trying to script things and not because they um, were taking away from the legitimacy of what it was that they were documenting, which is just the people they were coming across basically but i i think it's i i think it's because they're not they were trying to be themselves and it they kind of came across as what they thought people would want to see instead of actually being themselves and in order to get to the good stuff they would just kind of make it happen and again i don't think i don't think it's disingenuous i just think it it's awkward and so to try and make it less awkward it just feels scripted and maybe in some form of fashion it was um but i think that's more or less because they didn't know how to do it any better um but the but but still the heart and soul of the film is fantastic and the stories that you hear about and the and the pictures and stuff um, are great. So I give this one a 4.5 out of 5. Um, and it's definitely, I think, the most lighthearted one of all of them by, <laughs> by all accounts. Uh, it's not to say that there aren't touching moments or anything like that, but, um, I felt that this was definitely the bright spot of them all. So 4.5 out of 5. Bring us home, Tim. Yeah. I, I just think the, the things that bothered me the most are the things that bothered you. Uh, it's just, I think it bothered me enough to just give it a four because it's, it's good. But again, there's just a whole lot of use of narration and overdubbing. Like there's this st a stationary shot on somebody. You hear Agnes ask a question or ask a series of questions and you can just hear the audio, the quality change. So, you know, she's doing overdubbing or she's doing a uh, narration, you know, somewhere else. That just felt a little too, uh, again, stagey or artsy for the sake of coming up with something later on, other than what a documentary should be, which should be something that comes up almost instantaneously and on the fly, which is what makes this type of documentary art that much more powerful and, I think, complex. And I think that's what separates or sets the act of killing movies uh, aside. Because granted, yeah, there's a lot of staged moments, but those were staged vignettes to support the actual documentary. And there was still that documentary that is actually the foundation and the groundwork of the overall film. Four out of five for Faces 
places. All right. Well, it looks like we're done, folks. Uh, brings us to the end of the films. Uh, next week's movies. We're going to be doing the majority of the foreign flicks uh, for next week's episode. However, uh, we can't do them all because I'm. We're waiting on. Um, we're we're waiting on one to come out so <laughs> so I can get a chance to see it. Um, so we're gonna slide in one of the animated ones as well. Uh, so next week's movies are gonna be The Square, Loveless, The Insult. On Body and Soul, and for the animated one, Loving Vincent. Um, and I believe that brings us to the end of the show and to the spiel, does it not, sir? Spiel on. Is there something wrong with the food? No, the food was excellent. Perhaps you're not happy with the service? No, no, no complaints. It's just that we have to go. I'm having rather a heavy period. And we have a train to catch. Oh, oh. Yes, yes, of course, we have a train to catch, and I don't want to start bleeding all over the seats. Right, well, the music you've been listening to, as always, has been brought to us by our music partners, Cries of Solace. You can check them out at ReverbNation.com and Facebook.com, both slash Cries of Solace. As for us, we are, of course, the SLS Cast. You can find us at SLSCast.com. You can send us an email to the show at SLSCast.com. You can follow us on Twitter at the SLS Cast. You can follow me, this is Matt, on Twitter at Nitwit12345. You can, of course, come aboard that information superhighway and track down Tim on Twitter if that's your heart's desire. Don't forget, you can always subscribe to us on iTunes and or favorite us on Stitcher Radio as well as track us down on the old sound cloud so until next week this is matt saying that thanks to tom cruise i get to say this nothing ends nicely that's why it ends take care cinephiles and we'll talk at you again next week perhaps we should be going oh very well monsieur Thank you so much. So nice to see you. And I hope very much we will see you again very soon. Au revoir, monsieur. Thanks again for listening to the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. You can find us over at slscast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at the SLS Cast. You can send us an email to the show at slscast.com. And of course, you can always subscribe to us on iTunes and or favorite us on Stitcher Radio. Thanks again for listening.